Hi, I'm Rob Buckingham, and welcome to episode 28 of Digging Deeper. This is a weekly podcast that takes a deep dive into a theme or subject and explores what the Bible has to say about it. On this week's episode, I'll continue last week's discussion on why some Christians are terrified or obsessed by the return of Jesus. I'll share some of my early experiences with end times prophecy and teach into the verses that are often applied to the rapture. Finally, I'll tell you exactly when the rapture of the church will take place. Let's find out. I want to continue in this chat to look at what we were looking at last week. The question was around the end times, and I addressed the fact that the Bible actually never refers to the end times. It does talk about the last days, and the last days began with Jesus and then began with the church on the day of Pentecost. And so the last days are almost 2,000 years old, really. Um, the questioner says, I always wonder why Christians seem so terrified and obsessed with the return of Jesus. Surely this is something to look forward to and not be hyper-focused on. Even Jesus doesn't know when it will be. Must be a lot of people out there who are more in the know than Jesus. And I agree with you. And uh, last week we looked at all of the people that have made up a date for the second coming of Jesus or for the rapture. And uh, we looked at some of the crazy ones. So we'll look at a few more of those in just a moment. Uh, there, I have pages and pages of these predictions, and I, I won't bore you by reading them all. I've just mentioned a few more to you tonight and one that is particularly funny. This is feedback I received from last week. It's interesting. I find many people of my generation, uh, many struggle with these teachings, yet my kids are like, how do you get that from those scriptures? And that's a great question because what happens is if you're taught in a particular way, then you see that verse or that passage of the Bible always through the prism of that lens. That's why deconstruction and reconstruction is a healthy and wonderful and painful process because your eyes are opened and then suddenly you go, wow, you know, that that I've always been taught, I'm starting to see that in a different way now. And uh, I'll share a little bit about my own experience a bit later in this chat about when I first came to Jesus and my preoccupation with end times and the second coming of Jesus. But really, when you start to look at some of the verses uh, that we will do tonight that talk about the rapture, or at least are taught that they talk about the rapture, they actually have nothing to do with the rapture at all. So it is fascinating, and uh, we'll unpack some of those scriptures as we go. Someone else said, remember all the Left Behind movies. And uh, I do remember them, and I wish they had all been left behind. The movies were based on the books by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. Uh, they wrote together 16 books called on the Left Behind series, 
and 80 million copies of those books were sold. And so Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins both became very wealthy out of the sale, <clears throat> excuse me, of those books. Now, the books are okay as novels. The problem happens is that many Christians that I talk to today base their beliefs of Bible prophecy, the rapture, the tribulation, the Antichrist, all of those things, they base them on those books. And guess back to what I was saying before, that then becomes the the prism through which they look at Scripture, and so they interpret all those verses in the way that Tim LaHaye has written in his novels, but they actually come up with the with the wrong answer. And it's very sad. And it's actually a very poor way to understand the Bible, and it leads to a lot of fear and a lot of panic in people. I had a lovely email the other day from a lady who got in touch with us about the vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine, and she had some Christian people telling her or asking her why did she go over to the dark side and have the first vaccination and don't you know this is a forerunner to the mark of the beast and everything, and she reached out for some help and she was absolutely petrified that she might have denied Jesus by receiving that vaccination and I was able to send her two or three of my blogs and really set her heart at peace and rest and she wrote back and she said, oh, thank you so much. She said, I love Jesus and I haven't denied Jesus but I also want to be vaccinated and protect myself from this virus, etc." So we can see that a, a wrong understanding of these verses can lead to a lot of pain and as we'll see later, possibly death as well. Back to the Left Behind movies. Uh, the less <laughs> Left Behind movies got voted the worst movies of all time. And on Rotten Tomatoes, one of them had a score of 3%. So don't rush out and watch it. They're not great. They're not great at all. Uh, this way of looking at the Bible, which is referred to as dispensationalism, or futurism. It's the futurist interpretation of Bible prophecy, particularly the book of Revelation, it was made popular a couple of hundred years ago uh, in the 1830s uh, by John Nelson Darby. Now, John Nelson Darby's background is that he was a pastor with the Plymouth Brethren Church, which would have been a full-on evangelical slash Pentecostal denomination of its day. Uh, highly contemporary, and uh, because of some of his beliefs, the Plymouth Brethren leadership excommunicated John Nelson Darby, and so he did what anyone would do if they were excommunicated. They go and start their own church. That's what John Nelson Darby did. He took all of his heresies with him, including futurism, that he based or developed after a Scottish teenager had visions of Christ's return. And so he preached all this stuff uh, that really has been popularised by the Left Behind books and movies. It was popularised earlier last century by Schofield's Reference Bible, which was a very popular Bible 
with lots of Bible study notes. And of course, the whole, all of the Bible study notes talk about this futurist interpretation of scripture. I, I, know lots of futurists and they love Jesus and I'm not criticizing them as individuals. I used to believe the futurist dispensational interpretation of those Bible prophecies, but I do not believe that any longer. I have changed my mind on those things. I have deconstructed and reconstructed what I believe to be a much healthier viewpoint uh, of the last days. Last week, I wrapped up by talking about this guy, Edgar Wisenant, who wrote the book 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. And he predicted the rapture for some time between September 11th and 13th that year. Of course, nothing happened except the writer and the publisher benefited greatly from the sales. Four and a half million copies of 88 Reasons was sold in bookstores and elsewhere. And the Edgar, uh, the author Edgar Weisman, was quoted as saying, "Only if the Bible is in error am I wrong." Well, the Bible's not in error, but dear old Edgar was because Jesus did not return in 1988. So, what would you do? You'd come out and apologise, wouldn't you? You'd say, "Gee, look, really stuffed that up. So sorry. Why don't I donate all the proceeds of their book sales to charity?" and the extension of the kingdom and the gospel, but no. In 1989, Wisden said that he had miscalculated and that the rapture would actually happen in 1989. He published a pamphlet called The Final Shout, Rapture Report 1989, which he then put out for the next few years because, of course, the rapture didn't happen. In 1989, so it included 1990, 91, 92, and 93. And when the 1993 prediction also proved wrong, Wisenant's reaction was, I guess God doesn't always do things the way man thinks he will. Again, no apology. He didn't write any more books, though, about the rapture or the end of the world. Before he died in 2001, he said, now I can stand in front of the Lord and say I gave it my best shot. Uh, how deluded. No apology. No, oh, gee, sorry, God, I stuffed up, didn't I? No, he was dead wrong. Let's take a look at just a few more predictions. I won't spend a lot of time uh, on this because we Looked at quite a few last week, but these are worth mentioning. The year 1998 was supposed to be the return of Jesus because 1998 is three times 666. 1998 was also the year a Taiwanese cult operating out of Garland, Texas, predicted Christ would return on March the 31st that year. The group's leader, Heng Ming Chen, announced that God would return and then invite the cult members aboard a UFO. The group abandoned their prediction when a precursor event failed to take place. The cult's leader had said that God would appear on every Channel 18 of every TV in the world. Maybe God realised at the last minute that Channel 18 on several cable systems is in fact the Playboy network. Awkward. Then, of course, the year 2000, the list of people and organisations that called for the return of Christ at the turn of the century is way too long to be mentioned. We had Y2K as well. Some of you may remember Y2K when all of the computers around the world were supposed to crash. So we all waited up 
on uh, New Year's Eve 1999, waited for the clock to tick over, and nothing happened again. In 2003, the TV show Six Feet Under uh, typified or, or, or rather, should I say, put into, into their storyline a news story that was circulated in the early 2000s, which ended up being a fake story. But it was very, very funny, and it was so funny that they ended up putting it in one of the episodes of Six Feet Under. So the story was about a woman who was killed after leaping through her car's, her moving car's sunroof during an incident best described as a mistaken rapture by dozens of eyewitnesses. 13 other people were injured after a 20-car pileup resulted from people trying to avoid hitting the woman who was apparently convinced that the rapture was occurring when she saw 12 people floating up into the air and then passed a man on the side of the road whom she claimed was Jesus. The police questioned the man who looked like Jesus and discovered that he was dressed up as Jesus and was on the way to a costume party when the tarp covering the tray of his truck came loose and released 12 blow-up dolls filled with helium that floated up into the air. The 12 blow-up dolls, of course, were meant to be the 12 apostles, uh, apostles rather, not impossibles. Ernie Jenkins, 32, of Fort Smith, who's been told by several of his friends that he looks like Jesus, pulled over and lifted his arm into the air in frustration and said, come back here, just as the Williams car passed him. Mrs. Williams was sure that it was Jesus, lifting people up into the sky and jumped out of her sunroof and died. Now, as I say, that was circulated in the early 2000s as a factual story. It is, in fact, fake news, but Six Feet Under couldn't pass it up and they wove it into their storyline on that TV program, and, and I'm so glad they did. It's a very funny, very funny story, is it not? Then, of course, in 2012, another dreadful movie came out called 2012 and it was based on Nostradamus prophecies and New Age writers that cite Mayan and Aztec calendars that predict the end of the age was to be on the 21st of December in 2012. And of course it wasn't and uh, and they couldn't even put out a good movie. I want to touch on our questioner here about so-called end times teaching around the obsession and the fear that futurism causes, the futurist view of Bible prophecy, the obsession and the fear. I had my introduction to all of this when I came to faith in Jesus at the age of 19. And uh, I was hitchhiking around Australia. I was an atheist. I, I think I was... I was very open to spiritual things, but I didn't believe in God. And uh, I won't go into the whole story tonight because I really don't have time to do that. But through a number of fairly dramatic circumstances, I gave my life to Jesus as a 19-year-old and then walked away for a couple of years and then came back to the Lord when I was 21. And some of the first things I was introduced to was the book of Revelation. In fact, I think the book of Revelation was the first thing I read from the Bible and then the book of Daniel and Hal Lindsay's book called The Late Great Planet Earth. 
Uh, he has written lots of books, which I view now as all dead wrong. Uh, Hal Lindsay, by the way, is now 91 and he is on his fourth marriage. He's been divorced three times and is uh, married to his fourth wife and is alive and well uh, at the age of 91. So he wrote Late Great Planet Earth and then Satan's Alive and Well on Planet Earth. And then in the 1980s, he wrote Countdown to Armageddon. Uh, During the 2008 election, Lindsay wrote that Barack Obama was paving the way for the Antichrist. Don't know who that was. I love this comment that I found online today uh, from a guy by the name of Eric Smith. And Eric Smith is an electrician. And this is what Eric Smith writes. The book, this book, The Late Great Planet Earth, contains incontrovertible proof that Christianity is the one true way. Everybody should read this. By the way, he's being sarcastic. Every three years, Hal Lindsey writes a new book denoting how the world will end in five years. Each subsequent book explains how he wasn't wrong in the previous book and the world will really end in five years. He has followed this pattern for three decades and is now acknowledged as, and I quote, the foremost authority on Bible prophecy in the world today. Eric says, I'm an electrician. If I had been doing my job poorly and wrong for 30 years, I doubt I would be the foremost anything. In fact, I dare say I would have ceased to make a living in my chosen profession in the first 10 years. Great statement. Sadly, history repeats and we're seeing lots of people, Christians, pastors, evangelists coming out with their interpretation of current events through the coronavirus pandemic, etc., all prophesying antichrist and one world government and all this kind of stuff. And dare I say, they are all dead wrong as well. This kind of message, though, hooked me in. And and I'm in one way I'm really glad it did. So I, I I gave my life to Jesus. I sensed the power of His presence. I repented of my old life. I I started to follow the Lord and see change happen in my life. But I was really really hooked on Revelation, Daniel, the late great planet Earth, and Bible prophecy, and that kept me in. But as I've already said, I now know better. And I've had that whole process that which continues in my life of deconstruction and reconstruction. The rapture itself, the doctrine of the rapture, creates a lot of fear in people. When I was 21, I think it was, I was living in a farmhouse just outside of Geraldton in Western Australia with a mate of mine who had who had also become a Christian. And I was going through a particularly rough patch in my Christian journey. And so, you know, and the teaching back in those days was that you had to be rapture ready. So are you saved enough that when the rapture happens, you're not going to be left behind? It's a horrible way to live. So you constantly lived with this fear of not really knowing if you were good enough for God and to go up in the rapture. And I came back to the farmhouse one afternoon and I walked in. There was a couple of pots of food that were bubbling away on the stove. There were two chairs that were pulled out from the table and facing each other as if two people had been having a conversation and my mate was nowhere to be seen. So I started walking around the farm trying to find him. I'm thinking, oh, no, the rapture's happened. I've missed it. 
I, I wasn't good enough. I knew I wasn't good enough. And and so anyway, eventually he walked back into the farmhouse and I was so relieved and I told him how I was feeling and he said, I think he just laughed actually and thought I was stupid and I probably was. But that was, as a young guy, that was the the fruit of this teaching in my life. There was um, a conspiracy at the time that we all believed that airlines didn't pair two Christian pilots together. So they wouldn't have a pilot and a co-pilot that were both born-again Christians out of fear that the rapture would snatch away both crew members capable of landing the flight. And I remember people telling me that, and I told other people that. I was wrong. I am sorry. That is incorrect. Airlines do not do that. They're happy to pair up two Christians. They don't believe in the rapture of the church. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. So with that background, let's just spend a few minutes right now um, looking at some of the verses of Scripture that are invariably used to teach the rapture, which actually don't teach the rapture. So let me read some of these to you, and you might want to jot some of these down. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So futurists take this as a pre-tribulation rapture. They say chapter 1 is an introduction, chapters 2 and 3 are written to the church, so that must be the church age. And then chapter 4, verse 1, before the great tribulation starts, the voice says, come up here. And so they say that that is the rapture of the church and God saying to the church, come up here and you'll be safe with me during the great tribulation. Um, but they they get this wrong because the book of Revelation uh, is not sequential. It's not written in a Greek, Gentile, Western mindset. It's written in a Hebrew, Jewish, Eastern mindset. And so it's not written in a sequential pattern. What Revelation does, it deals with subjects, and it'll show you this subject from start to end, and then it shows you this subject from beginning to end, and then this subject from beginning to end, and that's the way it goes. And then another proof text, which also comes from the book of Revelation, people use if they believe in a mid-tribulation rapture, that is that the rapture of the church will go up, will happen halfway at the halfway point in the so-called seven-year great tribulation, which, by the way, is never mentioned anywhere in Scripture. Revelation chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. 
the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, which is an important time frame because three and a half years is the length of the Great Tribulation, which occurred in the three and a half years from mid-66 AD to 70 AD when the Roman armies finally destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, which is the time that Jesus was talking about when he referred to a period of great tribulation. Now, some of you may uh, may have read this and applied this to the rapture. Matthew 24, verses 40 to 41, two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, I want you, as we're reading these scriptures, to just take note of the word taken. Very important in this context. So here we've got Matthew's version of this parable, if you like. Two men in the field, one taken, the other left. Two women grinding at a handmill, one taken, and the other will be left. There are parallel verses to this in Luke chapter 17, verses 34 to 37. Jesus says, I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken, there's that word again, and the other left. This is Luke's version. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. Verse 37, where, Lord, the disciples are, where they're going to be taken. And Jesus' response is, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. So remember that Jesus here is speaking to the generation that was alive and listening to his teaching. We touched on this last week, but it's it's worth repeating. Jesus says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things are happened have happened. What generation is he talking? Well, he's he's talking to a group of people in the first century and he's saying to those people, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So it has to be a generation that was alive in the first century. He's not tormenting that group of people in the first century with something that was going to happen 2,000 years later. So this is something. This generation, he says, will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So all of the things that he's talked about in Matthew chapter 24, in Luke Luke, uh, 21, and in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 13, all of those things occurred in the first century. We're not waiting for those things to happen now. So in context, the word taken refers to being taken in judgment. So looking at the context of Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, People were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered into uh, the ark. And then look at this. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. 
the people in Noah's flood were taken. So the word taken here refers to being taken in judgment. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, he's not talking here about his second coming. He's not talking about the eventual rapture at the return of Jesus. What he's talking about here is what happened in the first century. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken in judgment and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken in judgment and the other left. And so just revisiting uh, for a moment, Matthew chapter 24, verses 20, uh, sorry, verses 40 and 41. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, taken in judgment, the other left. Two women grinding in the handmill. One will be taken and the other one will be left. I hope that's really, really clear. So taken refers to being taken in judgment, which is what would happen to this generation that Jesus was talking to back in around AD 30. Now, a biblical generation is 40 years. So from 30 to 70 AD in the first century was a 40-year period. What happened in 70 AD? Some people were taken in judgment and other people were left. What Jesus is actually teaching about here is the indiscriminate nature of war and disaster in general. Think back to the beginning of last year and the end of 2019, uh, the bushfires that we had through Victoria and New South Wales, and you'd see the footage on the news, and you'd have one street where every house was burned except for one, which was completely untouched. Was it that those people were praying? Maybe, maybe not. What Jesus is teaching here is the complete indiscriminate nature of war. The fact is when people go to war, some die, some get wounded, some get completely untouched physically and then come back. Invariably, of course, that they're impacted uh, in their mental health. So the disciples then ask the question in in verse 37 uh, because he, he uses that uh, little parable there in verse 37. He says, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. So the question the disciples are asking is, where, Lord, where will they be taken? And he says, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will be gathered. What, what does Jesus mean by that? Well, remember, he's talking about those who have died during this period of time between the mid point of AD 66 and AD 70, which is referred to in Scripture as either the Great Tribulation in Book of Revelation uh, or a time of Great Tribulation. So the battles that occurred from mid-66 to 70 AD were mostly left in the uh, – th- those who died, rather, in those battles were mostly left in the open with, with no one to bury them. They were left for the birds to feast on. Jewish people considered this to be a horrible fate. And it was listed, in fact, as one of the curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 26. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. And so this was a curse uh, for disobedience as recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 28. None of the verses that we have just looked at refer to the so-called rapture of the church. 
Now, if you're anything like me, you've heard those verses used in my early days as a pastor. I taught those verses as if they referred to the rapture. But through deeper study of Scripture, I now see those verses in a very different light. So, why is it called a rapture, someone asked last week, when the word rapture is not found in the Bible? Well, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. You're spot on. Neither is the word trinity, um, but the concept is. So we find the doctrine of the trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all being God. We find that in Scripture, and we also find the concept of the rapture. The word rapture has been used because it describes a feeling of intense pleasure or great joy or euphoria, which, of course, is associated with the taking up of the believers to meet the Lord in the air. A better word, though, than rapture would be resurrection, and that's actually the word that the Bible uses. And I want to wrap this up by Uh, sharing with you uh, three passages from the Bible and encourage you to note these down and spend a bit of time reading them and meditating on them during the week. So the first passage is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, verses 51 to 58. And so I'm going to tell you now when the rapture is going to happen. So listen closely. So this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery, says the Apostle Paul. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so... The latter verses there, of course, are referring to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Um, He he took the sting out of death for all of humanity because the sting of death is sin. Jesus died for our sins. The power of sin is the law. The last words Jesus said on the cross is, it is finished. What was finished? The old covenant law was finished. The old covenant law was not finished strong enough or able to bring people to a place of forgiveness and salvation. All the law can do is point out where we're right and where we're wrong and actually leaves us completely powerless. And then Jesus comes along and he dies on a cross and he rises from the dead and then asks this great question, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is in the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he finishes with these magnificent words, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. I just love those those words, don't you? They're just magnificent. Stand firm. Fascinating. You know, every 
verse of Scripture in the Bible that actually addresses the rapture or the resurrection of believers at the second coming of Jesus Christ, every verse talks about how we should live now in the light of one day being reunited with Jesus Christ as he descends to this earth. And here it tells us, Paul tells us, stand firm. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Not pandemics, not viruses, not conspiracy theories. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. What should we be doing right now? Well, giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Let's have a look at another passage of Scripture. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 13 to 18. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Notice this, when Paul talks about the righteous dying, he always talks about them sleeping why? Well, it's just, it's it's temporary. It's temporary. Um, so he said, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed about those who have already passed away in Jesus, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up or raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And then he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is a truth that's going to happen in the future. How's it going to impact our our life right now? Well, we're going to use this truth to encourage each other in the Word of God. And uh and, and so that's what we should be doing right now is encouraging each other, not making up dates of when this could happen, encouraging each other. And then let's have a look at uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verses 20 and 21. And Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there. And then he names our saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. And so Paul talks about that in Philippians. He talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. He talks about the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. All of those are referring to the rapture or the resurrection of believers at the second coming of Jesus Christ. When will the rapture of the church take place? When Jesus comes back. They are simultaneous events, not three and a half years or seven years before the second coming. Uh, in, In fact, it tells us there that it will happen when Jesus returns, at which time all of the followers in Jesus Uh, of Jesus, both dead and alive, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will ever be 
with the Lord. That word meet is a very interesting Greek word. It means to to meet someone and to escort them on their journey. If If you're meeting friends to go to a cafe, they might walk past your place or you might walk to their place and you meet and then you continue on your journey. Uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 28 and verse 15, it tells us that the some of the Roman church uh, heard that Paul and his team were heading for Rome, and so they travelled out, it tells us in Acts 28, 15. They travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. So Paul and his group were on their way to Rome. Some of the Roman Christians came out of the city to this place called the Forum of Appius and and the Three Taverns. They met Paul and his friends, and then they escorted them to their homes in Rome. That's what the second coming of Jesus will be like. So as Jesus comes to descend onto earth, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then anyone left alive on the earth who is a follower of Jesus will be caught up, will be raptured to meet the Lord in the air, and then will descend with the Lord. I want to finish with three what I believe to be very important statements uh, from all that I have said in, in this chat. So, Number one, most of the scriptures taken to refer to the second coming are actually about the end of the age, which is 70 CE or AD. So the three passages that I have given you toward the end of this chat, so 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4 and Philippians 3, all refer to the resurrection at the second coming of Jesus. But a lot of those other verses are not talking about the second coming of Jesus. They're actually talking about the end of the age, which was in 70 CE. Number two, any sections of the New Testament addressing the second coming speak to how we should live now in the light of Christ's return. Important, and I've already mentioned that. And then number three, Jesus' return is something to look forward to and not to fear or to be obsessed over. And that is so very important. I have spoken to so many people who have been in fear about the rapture and the second coming, and it's not something we should fear. It is something that we should look forward to, and I want you to feel liberated by this teaching. Uh, One more verse of Scripture, and this is taken from 1 John chapter 4, and I'll read from verse 16. It says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Hear that? We will have confidence on the day of judgment, not cringing fear. In this world, we are like Jesus. And then verse 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. I really want you to zero in on verse 18 there. There is no fear in love. God's perfect love drives out all fear. Any teaching of Scripture that leads you to some sort of cringing fear and um, kind of fateful expectation of something not good in the future regarding your God and you 
is not a correct understanding of those scriptures. And so all of those teachings of time past, this stuff that is still propagated by some preachers even today and they're ranting and raving about COVID and pandemic and restrictions and all of this kind of stuff and, you know, the government's got this evil agenda and blah, 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 blah. Well, some governments have an evil agenda, but but they're not normally Australian governments. Uh, some countries, yeah, definitely, but probably not where we live, all right? Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so if you're fearing, you need to go and pray and say, Lord, I just need, I need your perfect love to drive out all fear. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. A new episode of Digging Deeper is uploaded every Wednesday. If you love this podcast, please let other people know about it. And you can rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic that you'd like Rob to speak into, get in touch with us via Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. In next week's episode of Digging Deeper, Pastor Rob will share his experiences of leading Bayside Church and answer the question, what is the biggest thing you'd change if you could go back and start pastoring again? He'll also teach on what it means to be created in God's image. We hope you can join us then. Music